0: This podcast series is brought to you by Not Defined by Endo, providing support to endometriosis patients, their loved ones, and anyone suffering from symptoms that they suspect to be caused by endometriosis. This episode is sponsored by Totesphere, sustainable merchants in the UK, who sell products that are good for you and good for the environment. Hello, and welcome to episode five of Endo 101 a mini-series that seeks to inform and educate on the enigma that is endometriosis. My purpose on this mini-series is to talk about all the aspects of endometriosis, right from proper definition to treatment methods and even the myths that are pandered about the disease. I'm so privileged to be joined today by Mr. Thomas Bainton, the Endometriosis Fellow and a Senior Registrar in Obstetrics and Gynecology. At the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London UK. Last episode we discussed the surgical treatments for endometriosis and why the gold standard treatment for endometriosis is excision surgery to remove the disease completely. We also understood the different surgical approaches based on the kind of endometriosis whether an endometrioma, a peritoneal endometriosis or even deep infiltrating bowel endometriosis. Today, we want to talk about endometriosis and infertility. We know that up to 40-50% to of women with endometriosis do suffer from infertility or subfertility. So let's talk about this and understand better how and why this happens. If you have any questions you are keen to get answers to, send an email to info-and-not-defined-by-endo.com with your questions. Or DM me on Instagram at notdefinedbyendo or tom at ccmig.london. If we have enough questions, we just might do a bonus episode where we answer them all. So, welcome for the fifth time, Tom. Thank
1: you, Tenny. Lovely to be here. Absolutely.
0: It's so it's been such an amazing series, and I have learned so much from our conversations. And I'm kind of a bit sad that it's coming to an end, but I'm glad Me that
1: too.
0: <laughs> I'm glad that this series is out there for everyone and anyone who wants to listen to it whenever they want to. So today we're going to be talking about endometriosis and infertility. Perfect.
1: Tenny, thank you so much for having me back. It does feel sad it's coming to an end, doesn't it? Maybe we'll do some bonus episodes in, 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 uh, in the future, who knows? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. What I would say before we start on infertility is that me particularly, and us at the Chelsea Centre for Minimally Invasive Gynecology, obviously, are surgeons and excision specialists, so we're not fertility subspecialists. We work very closely with our fertility colleagues who uh, go through IVF and assisted reproduction techniques and everything else. So we can talk very generically about fertility. And obviously, it's so closely associated with what we do. What I would counsel is there would be far more sort of niche advice, perhaps from IVF specialists to be able to talk to people on a much more individual level about things.
0: Okay, fantastic. So let's begin. So up to 40 to 50% of women with endometriosis struggle with infertility or subfertility. So can we talk about the mechanisms by which this happens? We know already from all the conversations we've had that endometriosis is when tissue that's similar to the lining of the womb begins to grow in the pelvis or even outside the pelvic organs. But why does this cause infertility? Is it the inflammation? Could it be the scarring that can occur in you know those organs? Is it issues with the eggs or a change to the makeup of the fluids in there? So what would you say are some of the reasons why endometriosis causes or um, results in infertility or subfertility?
1: Sure. I mean, uh, so much of this goes back to what we I think said in the very first episode, which is the enigma that is yeah. endometriosis. And and to answer to your question quite simply, all of the above certainly have potential implication. Could potentially be a cause of subfertility when with endometriosis. The the one that we sort of commonly think about, and the one that a lot of people understand, is to do with the scarring. Or people might have had uh, you know operations, and, and the surgeons refer to adhesions and things like that scarring in the pelvis can be due to lots of things it it commonly happens after pelvic infections it sadly happens quite often after surgery particularly surgery that's been with big scars so more than um, laparoscopy if you've had a scar on the tummy Uh, but of course endometriosis is what we're talking about today and and that is strongly implicated in, in, in adhesions and scar tissue in the pelvis of course fertility is a very complex thing actually you know happens behind the scenes for a lot of people but in those some um, people uh, and overly represented in those groups with endometriosis who do suffer from subfertility it's revealed just how complex it is what has to happen is the the sperm has to meet the egg and that normally happens in the fallopian tube and that's where conception or fertilization happens and then that makes an embryo and that embryo goes on a journey down the fallopian tube and implants into the endometrium which is the lining of the womb. As we know, the endometrium is that layer that's replicated outside the womb in women with endometriosis. I think we've also discussed in previous episodes that even the endometrium in the normal place in, in the womb is, is, is somewhat different in women who suffer with endometriosis. And that endometrium has to be ready to receive an embryo and it has to nurture it and look after it. And then there has to be some hormone feedback between the embryo, the endometrium, and, and the ovary to support the early pregnancy in, in, in those stages to prevent things like miscarriage happening. So it's a very complex process. And, and there are theories that endometriosis can disrupt it at, at, at many parts along that. Going back to the scarring is the one that, you know, is quite easy to visualize. If you've got lots of scarring in the pelvis, then potentially there could be narrowing or swelling or a blockage somewhere in the fallopian. And that's a barrier. So you can get a blockage between the sperm meeting the egg. The egg can't get down the fallopian tube. The sperm can't get up. Conception can't happen. So that's what we call tubal factor subfertility, which is a cause of subfertility even in the absence of endometriosis, infections being the most common cause in that in that scenario, but it certainly is a common cause in endometriosis. Beyond that, you mentioned changes in the eggs, and, and then there's some evidence to show that eggs are actually quite different in women with endometriosis and, and potentially have some impairments in terms of conception and implantation, importantly. I would stress that these differences have been both observed and not observed in different sorts of scientific studies. So the evidence isn't that strong linking these things, but certainly there has been, um, been suggestion that there are changes. There was some quite convincing data looking at women who have donor eggs. So some women, for whatever reason, can't get pregnant with their own eggs. And this, this of course, involves IVF. And if, if you're using someone else's eggs to get pregnant, and in eggs that have been donated from a woman with, with endometriosis, there is some impairment of conception suggesting that there probably is something behind the scenes in terms of the eggs being slightly different in women with endometriosis. You mentioned inflammation, and we know, and I think we've talked about, again, in previous episodes, how the environment inside the tummy, inside the pelvis, is quite different to women with endometriosis. Mostly, there's inflammatory mediators, um, uh, immune cells, things like macrophages. There's chemicals called cytokines, which are all activated by these endometriotic deposits. And that changes the environment that the egg and the sperm are in. The fallopian tube, it doesn't look quite quite how it does in in diagrams and textbooks they actually waft around and move and they're open to the to the pelvis so the fluid that's inside the pelvis and there's always fluid inside the pelvis can freely travel down the fallopian tube and fluid from within the endometrium can freely travel up the fallopian tube so the sperm and the egg are in that environment and again if they've been exposed to inflammation then theoretically there's change in the makeup there's change in the in the, the capacity of the sperm to be able to latch on and, and penetrate and fertilize the egg. There might well be changes in the ability of the embryo, if fertilization happens, to be able to, to transfer down the fallopian tube effectively and then implant in the endometrium. Looking at the endometrium, there are theories about how endometriosis changes the environment, the hormonal makeup of the endometrium, most particularly due to progesterone, which, as you uh, as you well know, is, is, is the hormone that's supportive of early pregnancy pro gestational, we think about it, progesterone. Um, and that helps prepare the endometrium for secreting all the nutrients, all the blood vessel formation that an early pregnancy needs. And there are some studies that show that there are changes in the progesterone receptor. So the the receptiveness of the lining of the wound, the endometrium, so progesterone in early pregnancy isn't as good as it might have been otherwise. There's not, there's no smoking gun in all of this, unfortunately, and a lot of it is theory. A lot of it is putting together things that we found elsewhere. Ah, yes, the inflammatory environment in the peritoneum is different than endometriosis. Ah, it's different in the endometrium in endometriosis. Maybe that's the cause, but we certainly haven't got very strong evidence linking every single point of the chain. The tubal issue and scarring, I think, is relatively well observed, and we, we know that sometimes freeing up adhesions and, and, and helping improve scarring in the pelvis can improve natural conception rates. I think we're going to get on to that in a second and talk about it. So yeah, many, many causes, but the, the tubal factor and the scarring is certainly the most obvious. The others are source of, of theories. And actually on the rarer side, what I would stress is you say that 40, 50% of women with endometriosis struggle with infertility and subfertility, but the majority of women are able to happily get pregnant, including needing IVF. So there's certainly an overrepresentation of women needing IVF. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about how endometriosis affects IVF as questions go on. But to put it in perspective, about one in six couples struggle with subfertility, even in the absence of endometriosis. So that's just under 20%. So it's definitely suffered by more women in endometriosis, but it's far from meaning that you can't get pregnant.
0: Okay. So let's talk about... Treatment. We had spoken before about excision surgery being the gold standard of endometriosis treatment. So, would you say that a successful excision surgery would, could increase the chances of fertility post surgery?
1: Again, with this one, it's it, there's a simple and there's a complex answer. Yeah. It really boils down to to what sort of endometriosis we're looking at, whereabouts it is, and and importantly the severity, and lots of other factors relating to the woman because of course, it's not just the endometriosis that could potentially have implications for subfertility. Sadly, one of the the major links with subfertility is actually age. And it's not just the age of the female partner, the age of the sperm has a a big impact as well. But, you know, most pertinently, perhaps, in in terms of this episode, it is age of the woman that, that makes more difference. So you've got to look at everything in a whole. And actually, If we've got mild endometriosis, if there's no evidence that the fallopian tubes are obstructed, um, no evidence of of a swelling in the fallopian tube, which could change outcome, then actually it may be that surgery isn't the right thing to do. Even if you're saying we need to go for IVF, it might be that it's better to go straight for IVF rather than having surgery first.
0: Right. If...
1: For example, we're looking at um, the possibility that there uh, is scarring in the pelvis. We've seen that on an ultrasound scan, evidence of scarring, or, or, or we've seen scarring in a previous operation. Then as part of the fertility investigation, you might want to do a laparoscopy. And then you'd be looking at doing things like a dye test. So putting dye inside the womb up through the cervix. And then we're seeing whether that dye is coming out into the tummy, back through the fallopian tubes, which is tells us whether they're, they're clear or not. The good thing about testing the fallopian tubes in that way, rather than another test, which is based on x-rays and, and putting something into the, the cervix and the fallopian tubes that stands out on x-rays to tell that the fallopian tubes are open, the advantage of a laparoscopy is we can actually treat things at the time. So if there's scarring there and the tubes are blocked, we can hopefully free things up a little bit and help. And that certainly would help chances of, of fertility going forwards, whether, whether you're going for IVF or not. Where it gets a little bit more complex is talking about severe endometriosis, deep infiltrating, deep infiltrating endometriosis, and endometriomas, so cysts on the ovary made of endometriotic fluid. There is some quite good evidence to show that actually treating the deep infiltrating endometriosis, particularly the rectal vaginal endometriosis, including things like a bowel resection, which you'd think is actually really quite distant from the fallopian tubes, the lining of the womb, the ovaries, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. that actually, or excising that deep infiltrating disease does show improved fertility afterwards, whether that's by natural conception or whether that's by IVF.
0: Right. We don't
1: quite know exactly why. It's probably related to the inflammatory environment somewhat, but it's one of those slight mysteries. But there's some good, good evidence to show in, in what we call prospective trials, so looking at women who've had excision and not excision and following their journey forward in their pregnancy rates endometriomas is where it becomes a little bit more complex and and, and the evidence has kind of waxed and waned over the years in that it goes in and out of fashion essentially whether surgery is a good thing for an endometrioma or not in the context of fertility the the current advice generally speaking is we're better off being more conservative and, and not necessarily treating particularly on the smaller endometriomas which may have some effect on fertility And the effect they're likely to have is a change in the the eggs, the ovums, due to the environment that the follicles, which is the area that releases the egg of the ovary, is in. If it's right next to an endometrioma, potentially it's exposed to more inflammatory environment. There are theories about it being exposed to more iron. So an endometrioma is full of menstrual blood, effectively, and that's got a very, very high iron content, which can seep into the surrounding ovary and potentially affect the eggs. The reason why it wouldn't always be sensible to remove these endometriomas is we could sometimes do more damage than good. And usually that's in in the form of collateral damage to the normal ovary in the process of removing it. Right. If ever we're operating on an ovary, there is always going to be some knock to the ovarian function, Um, not just because of damage to the normal ovary in the process of removing the endometrioma, but also what we call thermal injury, because what we do to control any bleeding from the ovary, and the ovary can be very, very vascular, it has a really good blood supply, which is, which is always a good thing, but it doesn't mean we have to control bleeding from that area. Any bleeding we control with something called diathermy, which is uh, electricity and electric current put through the ovary, uh, which heats it up and effectively coagulates and, and, uh, and cauterizes those blood vessels. And there can sometimes be collateral damage because of that. The ovaries handle, the ovaries move, there's all sorts of things which the ovary doesn't particularly like having done. And actually, if the endometrium is relatively small, it's probably better off not to start doing surgery on it, purely with fertility in mind. Of course, it's not just fertility that's always the the issue, and, uh, and uh, endometriosis is, is often much more complex. And actually, it might be a mixture of, of pain symptoms. It might be a mixture of fertility. It might be a mixture of sort of non pelvic other symptoms. You know, in terms of l- looking at the whole body syndrome of endometriosis. So there would potentially be advantages to treating the endometrioma, but from a pure fertility point of view not always cut and dry
0: okay amazing okay so did that from- makes
1: sense i don't know yes. if you've got a clear answer out of yes me, no I did. <laughs> sure.
0: no definitely definitely clear very clear actually about and i was going to go so
1: sometimes me. yes sometimes no um, but particular caution endometriomas. Where it does can become a little bit more tricky is if it's very, very big endometriomas. And then if you're looking certainly at things like IVF as being an option for fertility, the IVF surgeons might have a hard time finding the eggs because there's such a big endometrioma there. It's distorted the structure of the normal ovary such that there aren't many eggs being produced from there, or they can be very difficult to access. Anyone who's been through through IVF will know that the egg collection process is is where they're going to insert a needle through into the tummy to be able to retrieve these eggs. And if there are large endometriomas in the way, they might not be able to access all those follicles or they risk potentially uh, causing some contamination and damage.
0: Okay. Why don't you take a break, grab a snack or go get hydrated and we will be back in 15 seconds. So that takes me to the next question, because you just literally, if I could summarize what you've just said is also, once again, treatment is usually individual, depends on your particular circumstances, which is really important for people to know. But apart from, um, you know, excision surgery, where sometimes that might not be the best option for women's mm. fertility, what are usually like your common effective treatment options or advice that could help them to preserve or maybe improve their fertility.
1: Absolutely, and I think this sort of advice is the sorts of things that we would tell absolutely everyone, irrespective of whether they've got endometriosis or not. So it's the the things that people would know about. It's the trying to cut down or indeed stopping smoking entirely if you're a smoker, and that would also include your partner if you you know if you've got a male partner and trying to stop smoking on his behalf as well. Not only does it help you stop smoking, it also improves sperm quality. Things like optimizing your weight. If you're a little bit overweight, we know that does have negative implications on fertility. It can take longer to, to fall pregnant. And also there's slightly increased complications if you do fall pregnant. So certainly we'd advise anyone trying to stay within the healthy range of BMI. So less than 25 and certainly less than 30. It's it's about living a very healthy lifestyle, trying to cut down on alcohol. There's evidence to show that cutting down on coffee is is beneficial as well. It depends on the sorts of treatment avenues you're going down. But if we're talking about trying for natural conception, then certainly timing intercourse around ovulation is definitely what we recommend for everyone. And there has to to be quite a lot of it you know the, the more times that there are potentials for conception then the higher the rate of conception per month we're looking at the you know, in the textbooks everyone has a period a menstrual cycle of 28 days i know that's far from true but generally speaking yeah. looking at the 28 day menstrual cycle you can ovulate day 14 and you've got a five day fertile window either side of that And sperm actually wait in reservoirs they wait just outside the cervix at the top of the vagina for for an opportunity to get inside the womb and they wait at the opening of the fallopian tube at the top of the womb kind of vying off each other ready to go up the fallopian tube and and, and fertilize so it's about having lots of sex to ensure there's a good reservoir of sperm at all times to grasp on that opportunity when the egg comes down
0: okay and how about any, are there, do you normally recommend, this is probably, I don't know if you have the answer to this, but are there any medications in codes that people can be offered? I know that some people get given progesterone and all of that, but is that, or is that part of the, an IVF yeah. cycle? Or I mean, that an, would be much more of, part of the... Okay. Well, it, 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 again,
1: it all depends on the cause and it is very individual. So if you were going to go to your GP, for example, or seeing a fertility specialist because you were having difficulties falling pregnant or taking you longer than average to fall pregnant, which, you know, looking at an NHS environment, we tend to talk about about 12 months. If you haven't fallen pregnant after. 12 months, then there's a a slight law of diminishing returns, a further 10% of people will fall pregnant in the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. But the longer you've been trying for, actually, the lower the possibility of falling pregnant spontaneously after that. So you're then going to have a few tests, I think we were talking about tests later on, and they're going to see, you know, ask you questions about how regular periods are when you're having Mm -hmm. sex, your general health, past medical history, those sorts of things. And, And the treatment really does depend on those options. But sometimes women will be given medication to help them ovulate. There's something called clomiphene citrate or clomid women might have heard of which is given to try and help ovulation so it it, it means that you are more likely to ovulate every cycle and sometimes actually you ovulate more than once per cycle slightly higher rate of twins and things like that basically to to improve the conception rate per cycle and for a lot of women that's all they would need beyond that treatments with progesterines and things are all very dependent on the individual circumstances and that's much more to do with 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 an IVF cycle or or an ICSI cycle or something like that so it really does depend sometimes again progesterone and is used in early pregnancy. So beyond just the conception to help support a pregnancy in those early few weeks, which are incredibly important. And that's much more common if women have got particular medical conditions or indeed they sadly have previous miscarriages and and things like that other medications are often used again if you've got autoimmune conditions and things we talk about using aspirin in early pregnancy if you have previous difficulties with pregnancy in the past and sometimes aspirin is recommended so there's, there's various options but they're all much more individual and actually endometriosis shouldn't necessarily change any of that and actually there's nothing specific with endometriosis that we recommend taking or doing in addition to all of the normal sort of healthy living optimization of fertility type things
0: Okay. Amazing. Okay. So let's talk a bit more about IVF. I think we're veering towards there already. Are yes. there any risks um, to going through the IVF process before ex- excision? So I, I think I know half of that answer because you already said before that, you know, not, it's not every patient that would need excision surgery before, you know, for mm. treatment. So I guess my question here is, are there any risks going through that process without, excision which means that you kind of have active in quotes endometriosis so is it safe to try to get pregnant or are there higher risks of it not working when you haven't done it? sure you could do excision
1: Absolutely. And and it's a tricky one. And again, it boils down very much to the individual coming into things like age. uh, And importantly, one thing we haven't talked about yet, any tests that might have been done looking at what we call ovarian reserve. So how many eggs are there likely to be left? You know, how much longer is the ovary got producing lots and good quality of eggs? And there are a few ways of testing that. There's a blood test called AMH, anti-malarian hormone, some people might have heard of, essentially, the higher, the better. It tells us that the ovaries have got lots and lots of future potential for follicles. The other thing is ultrasound scan and looking and counting number of follicles in the ovary and seeing how much there is left. So in some women, if, for example, they're on the slightly older side, you know, over 40 at least, or, you know, approaching that age, or indeed they've got a low AMH or, or, or low number of follicles on the ovary, then the answer is go straight for IVF, because that is going to be the quickest way of, of, of getting pregnancy Um, and actually by doing surgery by putting through an episode of recovery by potentially knocking the ovaries in terms of damaging their potential to produce future eggs we're maybe delaying the possibility of getting pregnant months or even years down the line at which point irrespective of any endometriosis you will be less likely to fall pregnant just because of the passage of time are you getting older so there are definite advantages in not having surgery before IVF so is it dangerous to have IVF before excision Absolutely not. And in a a lot of people, that would be an entirely sensible thing to do. In one circumstance where it certainly is advisable to have surgery before IVF is if there is a blocked fallopian tube, such that the tube has become swollen up. That's something we call a hydrosalpinx, um, which a few people might have heard of. We can sometimes see them on ultrasound scan or MRI. We can certainly see them at laparoscopy. It's often a sad effect of endometriosis. And there's either a hydrosalpinx full of fluid or what we call a hematosalpinx, which is a fallopian tube full of blood. What we do know is having either of those things is very damaging on an IVF embryo. And there are so many inflammatory mediators and all that inflammatory fluid in the fallopian tube, which naturally is going to seep down into the womb where the healthy embryo has been put back in after um, IVF's happened, and then it it has a toxic effect and it's much more likely to cause failed implantation or, or early miscarriage. This is often a really tricky discussion to have with people actually and it sounds entirely paradoxical. You come and see us talking about fertility and you know that fallopian tubes are, you know, what we need to get pregnant because they're the connection between the womb and the ovary and then, you know, we suggest after doing some investigations actually we're be better off removing the fallopian tubes. And of course if we remove the fallopian tubes and there is, you know, zero chance of getting pregnant naturally, it has to be IVF in future, which is a, a big deal for people and, and saying look this is the only way you're going to get full pregnant there's no chance now because actually we've, we've definitely removed the fallopian tubes what i can safely say is if, if there is a significant hydrosalpinx or hematosalpinx caused by endometriosis those tubes just aren't working well anyway and actually the chances of falling pregnant spontaneously with them are virtually zero already and because it has such an impact negatively on IVF, overwhelmingly the right thing to do is to take them out. But that can be quite a shock. And that sounds paradoxical because we know the tubes are important for pregnancy. Right. So that is one circumstance where actually surgery would definitely be advised before IVF. In terms of having peritoneal disease, deep infiltrating disease, so vaginal disease or endometriomas, it's again, it's a personal choice. It boils down to the priorities of the individual. What is the biggest problem? Is it pain? Is it symptoms from endo? Is it just subfertility. What is the ovarian reserve? How old are you? What are the sperm like, uh, importantly? Because actually, if the sperm potentially aren't able to, 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 to promote natural conception, you might need IVF because of that, or you might need something called ICSI, which is what people recognize from Looking at you know, uh, the, the famous picture of the sperm being injected into the the egg, that actually isn't IVF, that's ICSI, intercytoplasmic sperm injection. So lots more to consider. Regarding endometriomas, I think we, we've we already talked about that. Perhaps better to be cautious in terms of IVF. If you're going to remove a cyst from the ovary, we know, and there's very good evidence to show, that ovary produces fewer eggs afterwards. And if you follow up IVF cycles in women who've had an, an endometrium removed from one side and not from the other, we can look on the ultrasound scan and say there's definitely fewer eggs produced in the ovary that have the cyst removed from it which again sounds paradoxical doesn't it but if that ovary has got such a big endometrioma in it that you can't get at any eggs anyway then it might be best to remove it accepting that it's going to potentially knock the ovarian reserve a little bit again with the deep infiltrating disease some evidence to show that improved both natural conception rates and ivf outcomes if we excise that rectovaginal disease but of course the downside is it's a great big operation to go through and a long period of recovery to go through when actually fertility is the main priority it, and there's you know other factors which 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 are leaning towards IVF you might be better off going for that first.
0: Okay all right then so you already mentioned a couple of tests like you mentioned the dye test um, and uh, obviously ultrasound to look at the um, ovaries and maybe count are there any other tests when you're on this fertility path that you should probably be aware of in terms of the investigation. So you also mentioned the blood test, the AMH, which Mm. helps you measure the ovarian reserve as well. Is there anything else that you probably haven't mentioned yet that people should probably be aware of or should not be surprised when they're asked to do those tests in this process?
1: Sure. So, you know, specific to endometriosis, the the main difference in terms of facility investigations is people are more likely to have a laparoscopy than they are another test to look at, a laparoscopy and dye test, sorry, than they are to have the other test to look at fallopian tubes called a hysterosalpingogram. That's the x-ray one, simply because if we suspect there might be some endometriosis there, then we're better off doing a laparoscopy where we can see if the tubes are blocked right in front of us and we can then treat things immediately, okay. rather than saying, oh, look, we've got an HSG, that shows the tubes are blocked, there's a possible hydrosalpinx. we then need to go on to do surgery anyway. So that's what's different in endometriosis patients. Regarding that, I think the, 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 the important blood test to have, and we're doing it now increasingly before any surgery on, the, on, on ovaries and endometriosis, so with endometriomas, is the AMH, because we know that surgery is going to have an impact on that number. And if that number is low to start with, then overwhelmingly, It might be better off to go fertility treatment first. We know that AMH, the lower the number, sadly, the fewer eggs can be got back on average in fertility-assisted cycles. So, So it's an important one that if it's already low, what we don't want to do is make it any lower. Other blood tests. I think, you, I think you gave a very comprehensive sort of assessment there, Tenny, of, of, of tests happening before fertility treatment. But um, progesterone levels, estrogen levels, progesterone particularly. Again, looking at a woman on a 28-day cycle, which of course we know everyone has, um, it would be a 21-day progesterone. So looking at the progesterone in the mid-luteal phase, which so is that second half of the menstrual cycle when the progesterone levels are, are nice and high. There's an ovarian cyst called a corpus luteum, which is formed, designed to support the early pregnancy. So in Every woman, she hopes to get pregnant on day 14. Your menstrual cycle at least hopes you get pregnant. And then that corpus luteum is designed to produce that progesterone to support the early egg. And so testing those levels essentially is a test of ovulation because it goes up after ovulation happens at the second half of the menstrual cycle. Although pretty much if women are having regular periods, we know that they probably should be ovulating. Okay. One thing I think we didn't discuss is, you know, the, the way the scar tissue can affect the ovaries beyond just the fallopian tubes. And there's slightly more rare things now, but things like trapped ovary syndrome or unruptured follicle syndrome, where actually the egg might be released or, or in the case of unruptured follicle might not be released when ovulation, quote unquote, should be happening around day 14 because of such significant scar tissue. And actually that egg is held there around the ovary and it's just not uh, not able to get down towards the fallopian tube. Oh, wow. Again, surgery can potentially help improve those sorts of outcomes. Sort of thing you might see or suggested on ultrasound in terms of scanning around the time of ovulation, seeing fluid around the area or unruptured follicles, that sort of thing.
0: Okay, wow. So i I came into this conversation thinking that I knew a lot but I've actually learned a lot more than I knew so thanks <laughs>
1: yeah I think you know most of the 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 the, 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 the sort of extra things we've been talking about are on the rarer side and what I would say as I said at the beginning is that the majority of women with endometriosis are able to happily get pregnancy without any problems Uh, And in those that there are problems, we're talking about, on average, a longer time to conceive. We're not necessarily talking about an inability to conceive full stop.
0: Okay, that's good to hear. So a few episodes ago, we talked about some endometriosis classification and staging systems. And then we also talked about the EFI scoring system, which is supposed to be the Endometriosis Fertility Index I have read about it, done research about it and Mm. talked about it online, but no doctor has actually ever told me anything about maybe measuring that for me or, you know, I don't think people know about it enough. So whether that's because it's not a worldwide scoring system, I don't know, but I just thought we could talk about that system again a bit more. And I think it would just be good to know if you use it, what the system is and For people who are trying to understand where they fall when it comes to fertility, especially if they've had surgery, what should they be expecting or what does it mean for them?
1: Absolutely. And and it's one of those things that, again, like a lot of things in medicine sort of comes in and out of fashion as the evidence changes as to how good it really is, but it's been around for quite some time. And I think it has been shown to be, to be a good robust form of, of assessing someone's likelihood of spontaneous conception in the context of endometriosis and it doesn't just look at endometriosis half of the score actually is Totally independent of having endometriosis is related to things like how long you've been trying to get pregnant for, less than one year, one to two, one to three, or more than three years. Uh, And and the biggest factor that unfortunately often boils down to in subfertility is the the age of 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 the woman. So that comes into it as well. Any previous pregnancies comes into it in terms of having had a baby before, what we would call secondary subfertilities. You've had a baby before and now it's sadly taking longer to fall pregnant, is is a uh, a slightly better predictor of future pregnancy than if you've got what we call primary subfertility so just, you've never tried for pregnancy before you haven't able to be, be pregnant before so that's half the score nothing to do with endo the second half essentially all links into the uh, ASR uh, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine classification which again and i think when we talked about classification of endo in our previous episode isn't perfect and it it has downsides and and, you know people use it people don't use it and that probably is the biggest reason why uh the efi isn't used as much as it might be because actually the the backbone is a scoring system which has some fundamental flaws in it um but essentially that's looking at a combination of whereabouts the endometriosis is and how Big it is if there are nodules whether there are endometriomas there and you add up various numbers and what you get with the efi is a score between zero and ten and the higher the number the greater the likelihood of falling pregnant spontaneously it's not looking at ivf outcomes it's looking at spontaneous conception and it, and it gives you a, a curve looking at conception rates over up to three years 36 months. A score of naught to three, you'll sadly got a, you know, under 10% chance of falling pregnant after the first 12 months. And then, you know, very little increase beyond that initial 10% after that, if you've got a score of, of eight, nine, 10, then 80% chance of falling pregnant at, at three years. So much more optimistic. And essentially it's used as a guide to whether we could, Talk to people about um, going straight for things like IVF, or actually trying for spontaneous conception for some time afterwards. As you can imagine, if you had an EFI of naught to three, and you got a ten percent chance of falling pregnant spontaneously over three years, then the answer would probably be: let's go for IVF, and let's go for that sooner rather than later. you'll. Gore falls at the top end, then actually you'd probably say, well, you know what, IVF is it has risks involved. It's it's something that potentially has financial implications depending on whereabouts you live and, and, and what sort of um, NHS level IVF care you'd be entitled to. Let's try the spontaneous conception because we know that I've got a reasonable chance at least of, of having that. And then I'll review things in six months, 12 months, 24 months and see where we are. Of course, what's happening in the background is you're getting slightly older, which does change things.
0: Yeah. Okay, so that was my last question for today. My well, I have one final one, which is just you mentioned earlier mm. that more, well, more people with endometriosis usually go on to have kids, and which is actually a great beacon of hope for many of us. So I just wanted to say, do you have any final like advice or? anything any wise words for anyone going into infertility right now especially if it's as a result of having endometriosis
1: absolutely it's an incredibly stressful time and I think you know it's It's tricky with subfertility because it it can take over your life for for a long, long period of time. And anyone who knows who's going through um, IVF or assisted reproduction, the the commitment in terms of injections and visits to hospital and everything else, it is a huge, huge burden. So I think an important factor is often the support you have from family and uh, your partner and being kind to yourself as well and, you know, resting assured that things Usually the statistics are on your side in terms of things, and it can be a tricky journey. What we haven't talked about so much is things like miscarriage, which is unfortunately a, a sad truth in all pregnancy. We you know that on average, potentially, you know, one in five, one in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage, irrespective of any other medical history, including things like age. And again, it gets slightly more common the older you are. And miscarriage is sadly something that is more common in IVF and and assisted conception. So that's something as well that emotionally, I think, you know, you have to to think about if you're setting off on that journey, that's sometimes a bump in the road, which can be incredibly difficult. But overall, the picture is, is usually good. And on the whole, with endometriosis, looking at it, in terms of everyone, the vast majority of people have happy, healthy pregnancies. And actually, it, it, it doesn't have an implication in most people. In those that it does, there are plenty of things that can be done about it. Some of them much more simple, some of them would involve IVF, some of them involve much more complex treatment. And of course, sadly, there are very few women who actually find that they can't get pregnant, despite um, all of the above interventions. But even then, uh, any good fertility service would be able to talk to you about a whole host of other options, including things like adoption, surrogacy, and all those other things. So, you know, there is is hope somewhere.
0: Oh, thank you very, very much. (laughs) One thing
1: we didn't mention, Tenny, I think is worth a very brief mention in the context of subfertility. One thing that is slightly higher risk in endometriosis is something called an ectopic pregnancy, which I know some women might have heard of. Essentially, it's to do with most commonly the potential for scar tissue in the fallopian tube so it's where fertilisation happens and an embryo is formed in the fallopian tube that embryo it usually is in the fallopian tube but ectopic can actually be anywhere outside the womb but that embryo implants too early and it gets stuck in the fallopian tube which can potentially be a, a, um, a, a dangerous um, thing to happen in terms of bleeding in the fallopian tube so sadly that's a pregnancy which you've detected wouldn't be allowed to continue and often they they actually spontaneously end on their own so that's something that again is a little bit more likely with endometriosis and indeed with things like IVF so just to be aware
0: of okay thank you very much for sharing that so we have come to the end of episode five <laughs> I feel like there should be fireworks out there <laughs>
1: there should there should
0: I hope you have learned a lot from this episode today if you haven't listened to other episodes please make sure you do Next week's episode will be all about the myths of endometriosis. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love to know. Join me on Instagram and Facebook. You can also follow the Instagram page of Chelsea Centre for Minimal Invasive Gynecology at ccmig.london where Tom shares a lot of relevant and helpful information on endometriosis. Don't forget to share, rate and subscribe to this podcast. Till next time, remember, you are not defined by Endo. Thanks for listening. Be sure to come back next time.